Tonight, we're going to talk about the hardest place to be. The hardest place to be is here. I don't mean me personally. And I don't mean you because you're at church, because for some people that might be the hardest place to be. Others maybe be the best place to be. The hardest place to be is here regardless of where you are. We struggle being present and fully aware of what is around us. Because as long as over there is a possibility, being happy here is impossible. But most of us like to live with options. So that if this goes south, we can bail and go over here or go over there. And we like to have as many options the safer we feel. It's hard for us to be here, especially when here is the here that Jeremiah was sitting in when we read these chapters. You look at the landscape and it looks more like the moon than it ever did like the promised land. The Babylonian forces, with their pagan gods, march in to what they thought, to what Israel thought, would be an impossible scene. That they would actually destroy the city of Jerusalem, God's city, and destroy the temple, God's house. These pagans who worship a lesser god, a false god. How could it be conceivable that they would have any kind of backing powerful enough to take our temple down and its city? It's absurd and impossible was the thinking. But now Jeremiah sits in a landscape that has been reduced to rubble, ruins, and is being run by rejects. Because the Babylonians took the cream of the crop to Babylon. And basically, if you got left behind, they looked at you and said, you're not worthy of Babylon. You're beneath our standard. So what is it like to be in that kind of a here? And how do you be here in that context when there are so many seemingly better options? Man. Well, Jeremiah... Jeremiah actually is quite the guy, as you're going to see. Let's look at this. I just want you to see what he does. Chapter 40, verse 1. Bless you. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, that's the general of Babylon, had let him go from Ramah. When he took him bound in chains along with the other captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So what happened is when they took the city over, they took the cream of the crop, left the others, and, and sent them to the, to Ramah, which was a station. It was sort of like a, well, uh, it was a city. It was sort of like a station. And from there, they would set up caravans to start shipping you off to Babylon. So Jeremiah is part of these people, right? He's been rung, up, he's chained up, he's taken to Ramah, and there, the captain of the guard recognizes him. And as they're, you know, as they do their thing, poking the fugitives with their sticks and 
throwing out the ones that are too weak to make it and testing the will of others and chewing down your manhood to some and, you know, how it could just go. Um, He notices one figure in chains as the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was well known by the Babylonians because Jeremiah was the one who was proclaiming their propaganda. The Babylonians wanted to come up to Jerusalem and take it with ease, but the Israelite kings did not want to just, here, take our city, take our land. They wanted to fight against them. Jeremiah the prophet stands between them and says, look, it's God's will that the city falls, so listen up, kings of Israel. If you want to be on God's side, surrender and the city will stay intact. They will just put a different guy over us, make us pay a lot of tribute, but we will at least have our lives intact. But the kings said, how dare you betray us and preach on behalf of the Babylonians telling us to surrender? Of course they would want us to do that. And so the Babylonians get word of this crazy Jewish prophet who's actually telling his people to surrender with hands up. They knew Jeremiah, in other words. So as they're looking at the fugitives... The captain, the general, sees Jeremiah and says, wait, what are you, take this guy out of his chains. He should be more honored than this. He was helping us, as they saw it. (laughs) So the captain, verse 2, took Jeremiah and said to him, Yahweh your God pronounced this disaster against this place. So even the Babylonians recognized that Israel's God was on their side, the Babylonian side. Because of Jeremiah's preaching. Yahweh has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against Yahweh and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. So the Babylonians are recognizing that God brought this upon Israel because of their idolatry. So God's justifying his name to all the world. Verse 4, now behold, Jeremiah, I release you today from the chains on your hands. This is unprecedented. He's going to give Jeremiah freedom of choice here. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam son of Shephan, whom the king of Babylon appointed to govern the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think right to go. So you you saw the name Gedaliah there. Gedaliah is the Babylonian appointed guy to kind of just keep the peace. He has not really much power. It's his main job to make sure everybody stays loyal to Babylon. You can imagine what a bad job that will be. And you'll see in a minute how bad it is. But Jeremiah now is given choice. Hey, do you want to go live the good life in Babylon? We'll take good care of you. You will be honored by the king because you should be lauded a hero. The prophet of another God who spoke for us. You could see Jeremiah's head balloon, right? I mean, you would imagine it could. Yeah. Go to Babylon, leave these rubbles and these rejects, and go to the bigger and better. Or, if it seems good to you, Jeremiah, 
Stay here, these peewees, little leaguers. But what would you think the prophet who poured out over 20 years of weeping and bitter lamentation and hard prophecy and risking his life to get the people to turn back to God, what kind of a prophet do you think he will be in this moment? He spent his whole life pouring it out for the people. Is he going to give up on them now? So in verse 6, the captain of the guard gave to Jeremiah an allowance of food and a present and let him go. And Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Or, in other words, Jeremiah made the choice to live with the rejects among the ruins and the rubble. He had a good life presented to him. He had honor and status awaiting him in Babylon. Yet he chose to remain with the rejects. Here we have this image of the one who would come and do the same, Jesus, who, goodness, worked miracles and was a great storyteller and could have riled up quite a following if he only lived long enough, so to speak. Um, but he instead gave up his life, right? And he, and he always used his power for the weak. You notice that? It was always for the weak. He always helped people who were in need. He hung around the people the religious leaders said were not worthy of being around. Therefore, he was always harassed by them. Jeremiah here has a similar decision. And, and I think you see a pattern just between these two, Jeremiah and Jesus. To me, is enough of a pattern to see that some of God's best servants are those who are not always concerned with what is bigger and better, but are concerned with how to be here, even if here is ruins, rubble, and rejects. Jesus lived in a poor area of Galilee, but he was with the people. Never daydreaming about the day he could get to Rome and be a proper king. <laughs> Never doing that. said, I'm going to be the king God has called me to be in this context. And Jeremiah is going to be the prophet God has called him to be in this context. So in verse 7. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahiakim, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Now, here you have some rogues named Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Johanan, son of Kiria, Sariah, son of Tanhumeth, and the sons of Ephi, the Nedophathite, Jezaniah, the son of the Meachathite, and their men. Now, they rise up. They're coming back. You know, as I said, they, they were out there in the, uh, um, out in the land, they, out in the open country. They heard Gedaliah's been set in charge. And you know what they did? They licked their chops. Because you know who Babylon appointed to be governor of these weaklings? They appointed another weakling, someone who had zero ambition. Because if you appoint someone with ambition, he's going to try to start a new kingdom and revolt against Babylon, right? So you put someone who's really weak in charge. So, the general, and this shows you their, the, the, 
The people who had the ability to fight and who had a following, they ran out into the hills to hide. Shows you what kind of heart they had. When they heard the Babylonians left and left a weakling with no ambition in charge, they licked their chops and came down to meet him. That's why you don't want Gedaliah's job. So what you see now is basically the wild, wild west in, in the whole country of Israel. Leadership is weak, and now you have a bunch of ambitious, hungry men thinking, oh, it's a kingdom free for the taking. Um, so, in verse 9, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians. Dwell in the land. He's calling them to be here. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. They're like, were you hired to say that, or do you really think that? As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Gedaliah is asking them to come and live a normal life, be present to this land, farm it, harvest it, and dwell in the homes and and store it up like you're going to be here a while. Live here. So in verse 11, likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab, that's another, that's a neighboring country, and among the Ammonites, another neighboring country, and in Edom, another neighboring country, and in the other lands, heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahiakim, governor over them. Verse 12, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So here you have the refugees, the ones who, when the armies were coming of Babylon said, we're out peace. We got relatives in Edom. (laughs) So they go, right? They go on a trip to another country and wait out the storm. When they hear that it's over, they move back and all these people get to work and gather a tremendous harvest. See, they may have been obliterated, but God didn't leave them with nothing. There is fruitfulness for those who are willing to say, we'll be here. We'll be here. Jeremiah is in the midst of all this. But now the plot thickens. You're going to see the ambitions start to clash. Now, verse 13, Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to get Eliah and said to him, Do you know? That Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Please, let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life? So that the Judeans, who are gathered about you, would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, You shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. Well, remember, Gedaliah is not a man of enormous ambition on purpose. He's completely ignorant to the ways of ambitious people. So, Ishmael's not going to come kill me. Guess what happens in the next chapter? Ishmael comes and kills him. 
Ishmael then proceeds to kill the people around Gedaliah. And then some 80 people who come to visit him says, oh, you're looking for Gedaliah? Let me show you where he is. And slaughters them and throws them into a dry pit. So Ishmael's off to a really good start. By the way, Ishmael's that guy. Ishmael's that guy who can't be here. He's the guy who sees there's something bigger and better for me. Something bigger and better for me. I'm going to seize it. I'm going to move in and take it. He's an opportunist who preys upon another's weakness to lift himself up. And that's precisely what he does. There's something bigger and better, and it's mine. And he takes it. But we're now in, we're in 41 verse 11. 41 11. But when Johanan, the son of Cariah, I remember he, re, he warned Gedaliah this was coming. And all the elders of the forces with him heard all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done. They took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when um, all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. Yay, deliver us from this evil Ishmael before we're the next ones to have our heads thrown into the pit. So they rejoiced. 14. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. So see, we've got these power struggles now. It's, it's Ishmael versus Johanan. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men. Eight of the only ones willing to follow him anymore. And went to the Ammonites. Save us! Then Johanan, the son of Kriah, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people with uh, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Achaikim, soldiers, women, children, eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth, Chimhan, near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Wow. So now, so, you have Ishmael. It's bigger and better things for me. I want greatness. And he takes out Gedaliah and takes the greatness. Johanan says, oh no, you don't. He pushes Ishmael out of the land. And now Johanan's in charge. He's got all these people. And now he's waking up to the reality of, oh no. As he watches the male man riding the horse swiftly that way, it's like, I know what that male says. It says, dear king of Babylon, <laughs> your guy that was put in charge is being killed. Come and deal with it. And Johanan realizes that I'm the guy in charge now. <laughs> so whose head is on the line here? So Johanan wants to flee and take as many people with him as he can to Egypt. Oh, boy. So in chapter 42, guess what happens next? Johanan and his thugs come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah reenters the scene again. You notice he kind of stays off of all this ambitious power play. They come to Jeremiah and they basically say something like this. 
hey, um, we love God. We really do. And we really, really care about his will. His will is so awesome, isn't it, brother? Hallelujah, amen. What a great day. Um, but now, we, uh, we have this thing. You see, we've been praying, and uh, we just want to make sure, you know, we've been told it. We think it's God's will and all. But we just want to make sure that we're really in God's will. So, you know, you're a really godly guy. We really appreciate your insights and your relationship with God. So maybe you could pray on our behalf um, and tell us what God says. Um, you know, tell us if it's his will, we go to Egypt. Oh, no, no. But totally, like, whatever God says to you, we'll do, because we'll do whatever he wants, because our will is his will, really. So why don't you tell us what he says, and we'll all, hallelujah, brother, amen. Jeremiah's like, so you want me to pray that God will show you what to do? Yeah, that. Okay. So, um, Jeremiah prays, and in 42, chapter 42, verse 7, he prays for 10 days, we see, at 42 verse 7, at the end of 10 days, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. So here's the answer. And he summoned Johanan and, the, and all of his thugs. And in verse 9, said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. Here's what he said, verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I will relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares Yahweh. For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. Okay, one, they got their answer. Do not go to Egypt. Your reason for going, king of Babylon's going to be upset, invalid. God is saying the king of Babylon will know what happened. He won't be upset with you. Stay put. If you stay put, God will bless us in this land. But did you notice the last part and did it ring, did it ring familiar to you? Do not be afraid for I am with you. That is what God told Jer- uh, Joshua, as he entered the promised land. That's now what he's telling Jehonan as he's toying leaving the promised land. It's almost like the promised land is starting over. He's like, don't don't fear, stay. We're going to build something back up. It's going to start over. Well, if you ever talk to people who talk to you the way Johanan talked to Jeremiah... Hallelujah, brother. Amen. Yeah, whatever God says, I love God's will. Glorious day. And you know what I mean? They're like overly playing their whole I'm spiritual card. Now, this is not always true. There are some wonderful people who just have this way of just like, wow, I feel like I was just with Jesus when they talk to you. But nine out of ten times, and I'm making that up, but it's somewhere close to that. Nine out of ten times... It seems to me that when people are overly pushing the Christianese on you, it's because that's about the depth of their relationship with God. There's nothing more than the words. And so, you know, of course, I hear a lot of stories and a lot of perspectives and a lot of people's views on things. It's really interesting. And when I hear this kind of talk, the way that, Johanan presents to Jeremiah, we'll do whatever God wants, but they really are hoping Jeremiah will confirm what they've decided. Um, 
just be wary, okay? Don't believe what you hear from people all the time, especially if they're overzealous on what they're trying to say. <laughs> they're overzealous because they're trying to cover up a lack. And it, it, it rings evident here because when Jeremiah tells them that God said, mm, no, Egypt is not in the cards, they get really mad at Jeremiah. And they basically handcuff him and drag him, kicking and screaming to Egypt with them. And this is really sad to me because Jeremiah's heart was always for Israel. And he chose to stay here to see the land be built back up. And against his will, he is dragged out of the land and into Egypt. And as far as we know, Jeremiah dies in Egypt because we don't see anything after this about his life. That's a really sad end for a guy who gave his whole life to this people, only to still, even after his prophecies were proven true, I told you God was going to destroy us if we didn't surrender. Now who looks wrong? Even after all that, they still won't listen to him. You would think if there was any way to gain validity, Jeremiah's earned it. Everything he's prophesied has come true. And yet they still don't think his prophecies are true. Sad end. Um, so in 43, we see he's dragged to Egypt. In 44, he has his last hurrah. He stands on the steps near the, the palace in Egypt, and he preaches to them, basically saying, it's all your fault. For, in, in brevity, you look at eight, 44 verse 8. Why do you provoke me to anger? He's speaking on behalf of God. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live? (laughs) So their idolatry, as he says in this whole sermon, the idolatry is the reason we lost Jerusalem to begin with. And now you drag me to Egypt. You said because you're afraid of the king of Babylon, but we learn right here because really they lusted and whored after the gods of Egypt. They wanted to go to Egypt because there they have gods who have not destroyed their temples. I mean, we don't even know this Yahweh God anymore. He turned his back on us. His temple's destroyed. He must be a nobody. Let's go to Egypt. They've got the bigger and the better malls. That would be more of an American dialect, right? They're saying gods, but we would say that city has... They have the, the football team that's going to the Super Bowl. They, they have the bigger malls with more variety. They have the outlet stores that I can afford. They actually have culture and diversity. Or they've got, oh, that city's got the country music, let me tell you. It's a plethora of things. That's the way we would say it in our context. They wanted to go to Egypt because they had the bigger and better fill-in-the-blank. Egypt had it. Whatever it was, they were better than Israel. One, it was one of the largest, historically always one of the largest nations in history. And second, it's because they made all the bread that the rest of the world lived on. Second, Egypt hadn't been defeated yet by the Babylonians, not because they're so great, but because they were just simply the furthest one away from every other nation that was conquered. Babylon was getting to Egypt. And that's what Jeremiah says to them in in the sermon is, look, the sword, the pestilence, the famine, it's coming here too. You thought you are running away from it, leaving Jerusalem to come to Egypt. No, the bigger and better Egypt. We're going to be safe. We're never going to run out of anything anymore. Like that loser place, Jerusalem. Can you believe we came from that place? When people in Egypt ask us where we're from, save from up north, but don't tell them exactly where up north because we don't want them to think we're losers. 
And they think they're running away from it. But Jeremiah says, you're only going to find it there too. And here is the challenge with living in the present, living here and closing the options for over there. The challenge is we think that by going over there, we'll escape the pain. We'll escape the frustration. We'll escape the people or the place or the job. We'll escape the ruins, the rubbles, and the rejects by finding the greener pastures. But more often than not, the reason you don't like where you are has nothing to do with what's around you, but but with what's within you. And you're just going to take it with you wherever you go. And I'm sure you've heard the joke, it just came to my head, about don't look for the perfect church because as soon as you find it, you'll ruin it. (laughs) So, you know, um, whatever you think about us, it's on you. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) uh, Not really, but, but there is an extent to that, right? So in our circles, like, we keep thinking... If I can just move, or I'm church shopping, um, sometimes that's necessary because your church fell apart. That's a different story. Sometimes like we need these different things because something's falling apart within. And it's us, it's us, who are unwilling to show up to the ruins and the rubbles and the rejects of our own lives. Some of us fear pain. We fear pain more than anything. And we will continually turn to substance, to um, a pattern of behavior, to a pattern of thinking, to just trying different adventures and new things, to numb that, to avoid that, to escape that. And I have to believe that part of what Jeremiah wanted to do when he was given the choice, here or there, was to model the fact that, look, if you weren't taken to Babylon, then God wants you here in Jerusalem And I'm going to stay to help you appreciate that. And they got off to such a great start. You remember reading back? It got really gloom really fast, but it was good at first. In 40 verse 10, we saw they gathered summer wines and fruits and oil, which, by the way, I mean, that's a basic staple right there for the Israelites, fruits and wines and oil. Like, you can do anything with those and live. And then in in verse 12, they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So, They've been in an eternal winter for a long time. The Babylonians always threatening, right? They're always feeling there's never enough. We're always starving. We're always under siege. We're always, it's always dark and it's bleak and we don't know where the light will ever show up. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. And here you are. Yeah, there's ruins and rubbles and we're a bunch of rejects. But, but Jeremiah is showing, look at the fruits and it calls it the summer fruits. The winter has finally turned to summer. The darkness has finally dawned into light. The scarcity has finally become abundance. And Jeremiah is presenting, what more do you want? We want to look bigger and better in the eyes of people. Oh. But you have everything you need in the land. Yeah, but it's ruins and rubbles and we're rejects. And friends, some of us live with such an insecurity about who we are that it doesn't matter that we have everything we need, we want to be seen with the cool kids. I mean, this goes all the way back to the playground. This goes all the way back to our elementary days, being seen with the cool kids. And here, Gedaliah, uh, not, uh, Gedaliah died, um, Johanan, Johanan and his posse are the cool kids. They want to be the cool kids, who are really insecure that we come from the other side of the tracks, so let's pretend we're on the other, the, the cool side. And so they go to Egypt because that's where the cool kids play. That's where they trade their 
trading cards and play their games and drink their high brand sodas, have the rolled up jeans and all that stuff. We want to go there. Cool kids. So here's, here's the warning for us is, are you able to live here? When I say here, I'm sure most of our situations are at least half better than Jeremiah's. Maybe on a more metaphorical, more symbolic, more spiritualized note, maybe we do feel like there's some ruins and rubbles and some rejects within us in our lives. And you recognize that you're hopping around friendships, you're hopping around experiences, you're not rooting yourself anywhere because it's too painful. And you're hoping, you're, you're hoping, you're hoping that somewhere, someday, somehow, the great God will descend and deliver you from your situation. Friends, that is false hope. God delivers. God delivers. And we're waiting for him one day to deliver the world like that. But for us to go through everything we dislike in life and say, God's going to deliver me from this. It's to have such an immature view of what God wants to do with you that you're hurting yourself. God is not always going to say, oh, you don't like that? Here, let me pluck you out of that. What kind of a teacher would I be if my students squirmed under assignments and projects and pressure? And I said, oh, you don't like that? Oh, we don't have to do it. But that's how we want God to handle us. But here's the truth. Hope does not always bring us out of something. Hope is that which helps us get through something. There's a phrase, deus ex machina. And it means the God out of the mechanism. It comes from way back in the Greek plays when writers would create the suspenseful scene that the audience would watch on the stage. And as it got more and more intense, they would wonder, oh my goodness, how are the characters ever going to get out of this? And then suddenly, boom, a light would shine. And literally, from a mechanism, they would lower the actor who represented the god. He would be lowered onto the stage, and voila, it's all fixed. And hence the phrase became known as the deus ex machina. The God coming from the mechanism, lower down. Some of us live life expecting that just somewhere, if I just sit still, if I just do nothing, God will come and make it all better. That's not always the case. Even Jesus on the cross wondered when God was going to deliver him and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes God wants us to be right where you are so that you can plant your roots there and go through the trials he's put before you so that you can grow up and bear a harvest full of the summer fruits, the abundance of summer fruits. Sometimes things are falling down, there's ruins, there's rubble, and you feel like everyone around you are reject, including yourself. Because God wants to teach you that your worth is more than being a part of something that's bigger and better. That's all a facade. Bigger and better? Who said the bigger and better is bigger and better anyways? Who said that? You know who said it? Advertisers said it. 
I'm 100% serious. We gain a concept for what's cool because there are the gods of our culture who are pushing this stuff to say this is what it means to be a real human in this society. Jeremiah taught us that sometimes we simply must find contentment here. And for all these reasons... The hardest place to be is here. Chapter 45 kind of sums this up. And I think, I think really, it's very intentional here. Do you guys remember Baruch um, last week? Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe. Remember how God comes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to take up a scroll and write and he dictated the words to Baruch, who wrote them down. Jeremiah was not allowed in the temple anymore because he was too dangerous of a preacher. So Baruch went in and read the words to the people in the temple. Then he eventually read them to the king. The king cut the words up and threw them in the fire and said, go get them, cut their heads off. They couldn't find Jeremiah and Baruch. Right? Remember that? That was Baruch. We come back to Baruch. And remember, Jeremiah's timeline's always off. You're in the future, you're in the past, you're in the moment, you're in the past, you're in the future, in the past, in the future, in the future, in the future, in the past. Like, he's all over the place, right? And here's a great example. So we're at the very end, right? Jeremiah is like in these rubbles. The whole city's fallen. But now we're going back in time to roughly 10 years before the city falls back to Baruch. You're like, why? Why didn't you just finish Baruch when we were reading about Baruch? That's a great question. If anything in the Bible makes you ask a question, pay attention because the question is meant to be asked. Jeremiah wanted you to read this passage and say, wait, what? Baruch? I have to go back and remember who Baruch is. Yeah, well, there's a reason he's here. Let's look at it. So 45, verse 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah, now we know it's not these words we just read, because these are way in the future from the time Baruch's writing. So we literally have a chapter that's dislodged further down the line from where it seemingly should be. Okay? So I want you to see that. <laughs> Uh, so in the, he wrote this at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, verse two. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. Yeah, that's right. I've been talking to Jeremiah, who's been talking to you, and you've been writing down the whole time. I'm now going to address you. Thank you for your part in this, by the way, Baruch. I know you're putting your life on the line, teaming up with this guy, Jeremiah. Dangerous, I know, but I have a word for you. You said, verse three, so, this is, he's, God is quoting Baruch. Baruch, you said, Woe is me, for Yahweh is added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Yeah, if you work for Jeremiah, that's your life. Verse 4. Thus shall you say to him. So Baruch, listen up. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, what I have built, Israel, I am breaking down. What I have planted, Israel, I am plucking up, that is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares Yahweh. But I will give your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. A a very um, thick way of saying you will survive all of this. What struck me so clearly is verse 5. 
Like, oh, that's why this is here. That's why this is, quote, displaced. Because Jeremiah wanted this word to Baruch to ring true to the remnant who remains in the ruins, the rebels, the rejects, for you and I who are struggling to be here even when we want to be there. Verse 5 rings true to that. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. This is not saying, you want to do great things for me? Don't. What? No, that's not what he's saying. In the context, we have Ishmael. Ugh, look at this land. I've got bigger and better things for myself. So he kills Gedaliah. You seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Then you have Johanan. Ah, let's get rid of let's get rid of Ishmael. Look at this dump. Who wants to reign over this dump? Come on, cool kids, let's go to Egypt. Don't do it, God says. Hey, you seek great things for yourself, Johanan? Don't. And so Jeremiah brings these words said to Baruch in the past forward to this moment because he needs to remind himself and needs to tell the people around him the hardest place to be is here, but be here. You seek great things for yourself? Usually what that means is I'm seeking for anything but what's here. I want that over there. I want this. I want the bigger and the better, the flashier, the cooler, the bigger malls, the bigger stadiums, the winning sports team. I'm tired of the Anaheim Ducks losing 12 games in a row. I want to go over to Detroit or somewhere where they have a, you know. Hey, settle down. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Not the over there. Remember, as long as over there is a possibility, here will never make you happy. Never. There's an option. You will always wonder if it will be better if I do that or if it will be bigger over there. If you cut the options out and say, God, here and now is the moment you've given me. I will be 100% present to it. I will plant my roots deeply within the soil. I will stretch out my branches to absorb everything you bring my way, rain or sun, To choose that life is the life that flourishes. And that is what we struggle with so hard. So I want to finish us by going to John chapter 15. It just seemed like the most natural place in the world to go. Not only because the concept is perfect, not only because it was taught by Jesus, but also because the word Jesus uses, abide, remain, is mentioned a couple times in chapter 40 of Jeremiah. If you remain in this land, I will make you prosperous. John chapter 15. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That it may be uh, that the vine may bear more fruit. So like um, Ishmael, Johanan, prune, prune. They didn't want to abide. So let's make everything more fruitful by letting them do what they want. Now, already, Jesus says in verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Here you go in verse 4. 
abide in me. And the, the word abide is the exact same as remain. Uh, translators just flip and flop them because they're just like, eh, this one, eh, that one. They're equally good words. Abide, remain. The thing is, here, be here, stay here. I'm the vine, this is where you need to be. Not there, I know, I know. You probably want to be the redwood or something, but the vine is here, this is where you'll grow, be here. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, you can't do it over there unless it abides in the vine here. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides, whoever puts their roots in, whoever stays here in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Remember all the fruit they were growing in the land? Yeah. That's why they were saying, stay here. The fruit is growing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. We already mentioned the two that do that. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, your contentment comes when we learn to abide. When we learn to be here, you will find contentment. Ask what you want and you get it means contentment. Now, I think we often think of that as, but I want that over there. Ask for it and I'll get it. No, that's not what he's saying. You're wanting that over there. He's saying you got to be here to get what you want. Because what you're going to find is when you're here, everything you need is already provided. And all of those things were just ways to avoid the rubbles, the ruins, the pain, the rejects. And they weren't actually going to solve anything anyways. So in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He's saying this word so many times, it's like he's worried we wouldn't get the point. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And how do you get that? Learn to bloom in the hardest place to be. Here. Now, if you're thinking, Pastor Brandon, that's so easy. Easy peasy. Um, how many of you thought about, wonder how the football game going on tonight is going? <laughs> or, he mentioned the Anaheim Ducks. Does he know that they actually did win the last two? I wonder if they won today. Or, oh yeah, work. Yeah, sometimes they're not content at work. Oh yeah, I, don't forget to look at those emails. And, and Sarah needs an email first thing Monday morning. Or... I knew I shouldn't have had the extra scoop of teriyaki chicken. Or, man, the baklava would have been so much better than the oatmeal raisin cookie. Or, it could go down. I mean, there, uh, it could probably make a book of all the thoughts that have entered into your head in the too long that I've been talking. We have a hard time being here. We really do. We really do. But what we need to see is that when we at least try... God can come and make us fruitful and fulfill us with joy. 
And what we need to realize is, yes, to quote the movie Cool Running, a gold medal is a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you will never be enough with it. Okay, yeah, there's tons of wonderful things that maybe could be better for us. But if you can't find joy and contentment now without it, getting it is not going to change anything. So, hardest place to be is here. Let's learn to abide in what God has given us and put before us. And only move when we know he's telling us to. Um, So, Jesus gave us himself and... As we receive it, let's pray. And whatever else God speaking in your heart. But one of the things I want to pray is, I want Jesus to be enough. So, Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your poured blood. And as we, as we partake, we want the union you called us into.